2: KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. Therapists have been in high demand during the pandemic, but with no licensed psychologists in 33% of counties nationwide, the demands can be bigger than the supply. That has set the stage for a growing interest in services offering mental health care on a smartphone. Startups offering digital behavioral health care were able to raise $1.8 billion in funding in 2020, compared to $609 million the year before. We'll learn more about the landscape of therapy apps in 2021, and whether they can live up to the hype. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Arianna Prale. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly 1 in 5 adults in the U.S. live with a mental illness. That's 51.5 million people, based on data in 2019. Today, the therapy app Talkspace puts that number at over 70 million. Since the pandemic began, people experiencing depression and anxiety has surged. It's still hard to find a therapist for those who want one. And, like most things in today's digital culture, there's an app for that. Joining me first to talk about this growing industry of therapy apps is Molly Fisher, feature writer for The Cut at New York Magazine. Her cover story, The Therapy App Fantasy, was published last week and inspired today's segment. Welcome to Forum, Molly Fisher.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: So first, break it down for us. When we're talking about therapy apps, what exactly do we mean? Because there's a lot of apps in the broader self-care wellness realm, right?
1: Absolutely. There's a huge, huge range of stuff that comes up in the App Store if you search therapy, or if you search anxiety, or depression, or stress, or any of of that kind of cloud of words. Um, In the story, I really zeroed in on some of the ones that purport to offer something that's very close to, or as close as possible to, in-person therapy. You know, something that's going to connect you with a licensed, trained clinician, whether it's a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, But, you know, uh, apart from that, there is a range of stuff that offers chatbots, that offers mood trackers, that offers, you know, mindfulness exercises. And um, so you really, there's a lot you can choose between, but the higher end ones, the ones that are going to cost you hundreds of dollars a month are services like Talkspace, um, BetterHelp, Uh, Ginger, Calmary, there's there's a number of those. And I think the ones that maybe are um, most front of mind for a lot of people, because they've been advertising most aggressively to consumers, are Talkspace and BetterHelp, probably. So I I spent um, a lot of time in the story that I wrote last week speaking to therapists and patients who had been involved with those services.
2: Yeah, so walk us through one of these apps. If you're a user, how do you find a therapist? And when you do, how do you get therapy. You liken it at times to a dating app in some respects. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, that's an analogy that came up from a number of the sources I spoke to. I think because similarly to dating, you know, there's this kind of initial hurdle of it feeling really daunting or really challenging to meet someone, to find the right person. Because as with dating, when you're looking for a therapist, you're hoping that you're going to find someone Who you have some kind of connection with who you trust who you feel like understands you and who you're comfortable talking to and who is on the same page of you as you in all kinds of ways um and that that can feel you know really challenging if you're just staring out at the world and wondering how you're going to find the right person for you so when you first sign up um You know, you will usually do something on one of these services like complete a short questionnaire where you tell them some of the symptoms you're experiencing, where you, um, they kind of try to sort out or uh, avoid uh, making sure that, you know, you're not in an immediate crisis, like you're not, um, you're not having suicidal ideation or something like that, that the app really would not be equipped to address. Um, And then you know, after you give them some sense of roughly who you are and what your needs are, they present you with a handful of names and headshots, and then you get to you know maybe watch a video message that each of those therapists has recorded and choose who you think is the right person for you. Um, and I think for a lot of users, there's a really um, initial exciting sense of relief in going from feeling like you don't have anyone to talk to, you don't know you know, who your therapist, or I'm sorry, who your insurance is going to cover or how you're going to go about finding someone to all of a sudden having names and faces in the palm of your hand. But, um, as with, uh, dating app, I think that what a lot of people find as they start actually, you know, trying to figure out if one of these people is someone who they connect with, trust, who they think gets them, who even responds reliably to their messages and doesn't ghost them is that, um, you know, the the challenge has sort of just been kicked down the road. It hasn't been eliminated entirely. It's still difficult to find someone who you have that rapport with. And, um, you know, it, it is also easy with these apps to decide you're going to click a button and switch to a different therapist. You know, you don't have to have an awkward conversation where you explain that it isn't quite the right fit. As with a dating app, it's pretty easy to ghost without having that kind of um, awkward conversation. So, I think that uh people people experience some of the same kind of interpersonal fatigue from these services in the worst case scenario that they maybe do if they're a dissatisfied user of a dating app
2: and on average, how much is this costing
1: well i mean i i i would i'm hesitating to do math on the spot and come up with an average (laughs) for you. (laughs) But, you know, if you look at something like Talkspace, for example, a plan that would provide you with a weekly half-hour conversation with a therapist, as well as text messaging with that therapist, would cost you something like $400 a month almost. And so that's getting pretty close to what you might pay in either co-pays or even potentially out-of-pocket costs if you found a, a conventional therapist.
2: Well, let's bring Dr. Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist and an associate professor at UC Berkeley, where he directs the Digital Health Equity and Access Lab. He's also a consultant for digital mental health recommendation system, Cindy Health. Let's bring him into the conversation. Welcome, Dr. Aguilera.
3: Hi there. Thanks for having me
2: so just hearing some of uh what molly's outlining with the cost right here it all automatically kind of brings up the question around access and, and equity right which i know is a core part of your work and when i first saw therapy apps becoming a thing my first thought was wow you know if this helps more people access mental health support and who might not otherwise afford it that's great but then when i hear those costs it seems like therapy apps are more convenient maybe than accessible? How do you see what's happening with these apps through this equity lens?
3: Um, Yeah, I think the way I approach this is trying to support the innovation and the uh, expanding the reach and the scale of mental health services. The reality is that uh, given the need, it is impossible to provide everybody uh, that needs mental health care one-to-one services uh in the traditional model um, that's simply not possible. Therefore, we need to uh, look towards ways to integrate technology to expand the reach of our mental health services and the knowledge base. Um, however, at the same time, you know my focus is is making sure that we don't exacerbate pre-existing mental health disparities, particularly in terms of use uh, utilization of mental health services. So currently, uh, uh folks from Latinx backgrounds, uh, African-American backgrounds, and Asian backgrounds uh, the most uh, use services at, at the lowest rates. So there's a, a much more unmet need uh, among those populations. And so one of my concerns is that as these uh, apps get developed and they reach more people, if they are not developed for uh, people with the highest unmet need, we may actually... Uh, make disparities worse. Uh, And which is why a lot of our work focuses on developing with and for um, these more underserved populations um, so that the tools can better match uh, their needs and ideally um, don't suffer from these issues of of cost uh, in the same way, right? So our model is a little bit different. Granted, we're more on the research side versus on the commercial side.
2: Yeah. And, And so what are some of the risks involved with the app approach to therapy? Do we know yet whether rewards are outweighing the risks or vice versa?
3: It's hard to say uh, in part because a lot of these are commercial and they're being um, rolled out, but not necessarily tested. So we're not seeing the actual impact. We're not assessing how much need they're meeting that maybe is not being met elsewhere. Um, So that is really unclear. And I think that it would be great to have more of that research. Um, I do think a challenge comes in that uh, private companies have a vested interest in selling their product and sharing data on impact um, could uh, have uh, consequences to their bottom line or the way they're perceived, etc.,
2: and Molly Fisher, how do you know when you're communicating with a licensed therapist through these apps? What sort of vetting do the therapy app companies do?
1: Well, generally, my, my understanding is that, you know, therapists are submitting when they apply to use one of these platforms to provide their services. Um, they are supplying a resume, supplying the information on their licensing, all of that, that you would kind of expect as a baseline, you know, qualification. Um, they are... I have, seen, I have seen concerns raised online about uh, services like Talkspace or BetterHelp perhaps not using licensed therapists. And that does not, in fact, seem to be the thing that you need to be concerned about by and large. Although I will say there are a number of other services out there that um, perhaps are presenting themselves as counseling or therapeutic conversations with trained listeners, and those uh, aren't necessarily presenting the user with licensed therapists. Um, there may be other value in those services. I think you know people who are really just seeking to connect with another person might find value in having a conversation with a peer as opposed to a professional. But I think um, when you're paying when you're paying the kinds of costs that these services like BetterHelp and Talkspace are asking, uh, you are generally getting a a professional. But it's not necessarily um, y- y- you know you don't you can't necessarily. Bank on a lot beyond that, and you also are getting a professional who, in many cases, is spread very, very, very thin. Um, one thing that I was most struck by in my reporting on this was the size of the caseloads that therapists who are using these services are either expected to take on or are being incentivized to take on because the compensation rates are generally for the therapists much lower than um than what they might see, whether they're getting insurance reimbursement or getting clients paying out of pocket.
2: All right. Well, it's I think it would be great to hear from our listeners at this point. So have you used a therapy app, whether as someone seeking mental health support or as a therapist? How did it work for you? And do you welcome the growth of therapy apps? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've been talking with Molly Fisher, features writer for The Cut at New York Magazine and Dr. Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist and associate professor at UC Berkeley. We'll have more and some more guests to our panel after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. You're listening to Forum. <music>
4: Welcome back to
2: Forum. I'm Arianna Prale. We're talking about therapy apps with Molly Fisher, features writer for The Cut at New York Magazine. Her recent article is The Therapy App Fantasy, and Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist, associate professor at UC Berkeley, and he directs the Digital Health Equity and Access Lab. And also joining us now is Hannah Zevin, lecturer in the English and history departments at UC Berkeley and author of the forthcoming book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Welcome to Forum, Hannah Zevin.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So how did we get here? In Molly's article, you're quoted as saying that we've been in a crisis of access to mental health care really since mental health care professionalized.
5: How so? Well, I mean, the longer history that I tell in my book is about this intersection, right? That, um, as Adrian has said, we've never reached a point where that one-to-one model works for everyone, where we have enough therapists, psychiatrists, and so on to treat the demand, uh, the patients in waiting. Um, and uh, media and technology have always, I argue, stepped in uh, and people have creatively tried to use, whether it's you know that common household appliance of the telephone or the radio broadcast, and now, of course, apps to fill that gap, which has also been an impossibility. And you write in your
2: forthcoming book, The Distance Care, that in
5: times of
2: personal or national crisis, people still overwhelmingly turn to a form of teletherapy. Can you speak more about that?
5: Yes, thank you. Um, so the example in the book there is is a collection of crises. Of course, the pandemic is one of them, um, but so are, you know, um, the suicide epidemic in San Francisco in the 1960s that I look at, uh, and so is Hurricane Maria and so on. Teletherapy across its long history has almost always been for free and uh, been driven by a democratic promise of access that, of course, uh, apps like Talkspace are deeply drawing on in their slogan, Therapy for All. Uh, And we have to take a step back and, you know, question that, as uh, Molly and Adrian have already begun to address. Well, Pete tweets,
2: the pandemic has forced people to become more contemplative, which is a very good thing. Knowing self fosters self-compassion, which then becomes compassion for others and empathy as well. It takes a little bit of work in quotations and some quality guidance. An app is not up to the task. Uh, Adrian Aguilera, what's your response to what Pete tweets?
3: Um, I mean, I see it, it. I don't see it as an all or nothing thing. I think that apps are not the cure, they're not the silver bullet. Um, I think particularly when, you know, about 10 years ago, when apps for mental health started taking off, there was this perspective that you build the app for depression, for anxiety, and that it would just address all of the problems. Um, And I think we've gone to the other side to to really see the downsides of of apps. But I think there's a place for technology. I think You know, I think a better way of viewing technology and health is to figure out where does technology fit in and how does technology fit in? Because we can't do one-to-one therapy for everybody, some people may need a little bit of support, maybe tracking their mood, maybe learning some skills. Another subset of people may need some more personal support. Uh, Perhaps that's peers, as Molly mentioned. Another subset uh, could benefit from more uh, intensive clinical support, et cetera. And so I th- I think it's a little bit more helpful to view the broad kind of public mental health model that way and then to see how can technology enable some of these things. So in our work, for example, was therapy plus um, automated text messaging to kind of help people get more out of, out of treatment. You know, that's one model. Um, and so I think there are various models. I don't think it's a black and white issue.
2: And Talkspace tagline is, you know, famously therapy for all. It's inspired, it's ambitious, like a lot of vision and mission statements. And startups offering digital behavioral health care, you know, raised $1.8 billion in funding in 2020. Hannah's even, is the therapy app industry scalable? Does that mean more bots than humans if it does scale? What is, what's that looking like?
5: Yeah, so these these two, and I think they're called spaces in sort of Silicon Valley speak, um, they do overlap. Uh, what Molly was talking about, that quiz that opens almost all of these applications start with using an algorithm or a really quick quiz to sort of deduce, oh, you might work well with X or Y type of therapist. So there are already uh, bots doing in a way, I mean, not bots, but algorithms doing that referral work that has traditionally been a very important part of finding care and finding good care and finding a match. Uh, and uh, of course, there are apps that are interested in becoming conversational agents or friends, uh, where we're seeing an increase in the virtual human, in the care ecosystem. Um, Replica is an app like that, uh, where you can highly customize uh, an avatar for an algorithm to speak with. Uh, and it's built both as a mental health intervention and to address human loneliness. But of course, as Molly points out, it's not a therapy. So it also, all of these apps that don't claim to be therapeutic intervention, but like it, skirt that FDA sort of oversight and control, which is another thing we have to pay attention to.
2: Well, let's go to a caller. Adam in San Francisco, you're on.
6: Hi, good morning. I'm a provider on BetterHelp and a psychologist in San Francisco. And it's definitely been great for getting clients because you can get as many clients as you can possibly want. But what you end up getting for a 50-minute session, which would be the traditional amount, is about $22. And as someone working in San Francisco, the difference between what you get on BetterHelp and Market Rate is definitely not incentive to stick with it and to stay with those clients other than trying to establish a connection with them and then taking them off BetterHelp so they can pay you directly the same amount they're paying for their subscription, Hmm. then at least you're getting all that money.
0: Got it.
2: Well, thank you for for sharing that perspective, um, Adam. And Molly Fisher, is that resonating with some of what you heard from the psychologists you spoke to for your piece?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was really floored the first time someone who actually was in the Bay Area, I believe, he was a therapist in Marin, and I asked him how much BetterHelp reimbursed for his services, and he said it was around $30 a session maybe. They use a an algorithm that tries to convert um, the minutes you spend speaking to someone face-to-face and the number of words you exchange via text message and compiles all that to, to give you a, a, a rough hourly rate. But it's a little opaque. Anyway, he was saying that he made roughly uh, $30 a session and – I was kind of floored by that, and I asked him what he would make uh, if he were in private practice in the area, and he said he could easily be charging $250. Um, And, you know, that's not to say that it should cost $250, because clearly that's a cost that's, you know, enormously prohibitive. But I think it does raise the question of how on earth um, this business model can be sustainable for practitioners. I, I mean, many of the people I spoke to turned to Better help or talk space when they were, um, and I'm sorry, I mean, the people I spoke to who are clinicians, who are therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, turned to these services when they were kind of in moments of transition, you know, maybe they moved to a different state and they were waiting for their licensing to come through in the new state, or they had a partner who was going to grad school someplace else. And so they knew they were just going to be living in another state temporarily, or maybe they were transferring to private practice after having had an institutional job, or they were dealing with childcare. So they were kind of in special circumstances where, um, where having the flexibility and not having to go to an office pre pandemic um, was really appealing to them. But what I heard overwhelmingly was that they didn't see how they could stay with the services long term because it simply wasn't financially sustainable. You know, I spoke to a woman who um, had practiced in North Dakota and Montana and said that she was working full-time on BetterHelp and it just was not paying the bills. And so that's a place that does not have quite the same cost of living concerns you'd see in a place like, for example, San Francisco. And even so, it just was unsustainable. And, you know, she too said that she really had hoped, had been hopeful that a service like BetterHelp could make a difference in terms of expanding access because she had really seen how hard it was for people to, you know, travel three hours or something to get to the closest psychologist if that was all that was available to them, you know, that she had seen how distance could be a real issue. But it just wasn't possible as a provider to try to deliver the quality of care that you wanted to deliver and be compensated so poorly. Well, i
2: Dr. Adrian Aguilar, I wanted to turn back to you and some of your research, which I think has been really interesting, looking at SMS text messaging health interventions and specifically with Spanish speakers in a group therapy setting, again, looking at this access and equity issue. Can you tell us what your research revealed on that front?
3: Sure. Uh, so what we did is we ran uh, therapy groups uh, for folks uh, struggling with depression. Uh, And it functions kind of like a class uh, that takes 16 weeks Uh, and, you know, intentionally it's a group to try to reach more people, right? So that's kind of one model that can help expand reach uh, a little bit. And so along with this uh, course of treatment, we sent automated text messages to folks that were in treatment to help them track their mood on a daily basis. Um, and also remind them about the themes that we were talking about in session for that week so that they can continue practicing them. And we studied what the uh, engagement was for people who were getting text messages versus other folks who were not. And what we found is people who were getting text messages uh, stayed in treatment till about the 12th week compared to folks uh, who did it, who uh, only stayed in treatment for about three weeks or so. There's high dropout rate uh, in... Uh, psychotherapy services generally, and it's even uh, higher among uh, folks with fewer resources or, or lower resource settings. So we, we were able to show that with this technology, even though they're automated, we were able to keep people engaged. And, and what we know about struggling with uh, emotional challenges is that, you know, they go up and down. So particularly if you're depressed, Uh, your motivation is difficult, right? So you may start treatment, but you may feel bad for a couple weeks, and you may just stop. Uh, But with the messages, I think what happened is that folks felt a connection. They felt connected to uh, the group, to the clinician, and then once they felt a little bit better, there was motivation to come back. Uh, People even attributed some of the messages, even though they were automated, to myself. I was a clinician for for one of the groups, and uh, so much so that at one point there was a glitch in the system, and they didn't go out, and they said, "Uh, Dr. Aguilera, you forgot about us. Um, And it was an interesting realization of the power of technology, not just for technology's sake, but the ability to increase connection, right? And so there's this delicate blend between the human and the technology, and I think that's something we're still trying to figure out mm
2: We're talking about therapy apps with Hannah Zevin, UC Berkeley lecturer and author of the forthcoming book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Molly Fisher features writer for The Cut at New York Magazine and Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist and associate professor at UC Berkeley. And also you, our listeners, have you used a therapy app, whether as someone seeking mental health support or as a therapist, how did it work for you? Do you welcome the growth of therapy apps? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let's go to a caller. Bob in Richmond, you're on.
0: Hi, uh, this is Bob. I have a, a small law firm in, in uh, Berkeley that's been specializing in representing uh, therapists and licensed uh medical and health professionals for a long time, in front of their boards, in front of their licensing board. So as to your conversation about checking on somebody's verific, you know, credentials, um, anyone who wants to can go up to the California Board of Psychology or the Board of Behavioral Sciences and check on somebody's, um, not only whether they're licensed, but what their licensed history is, whether they've had complaints or discipline or some kind of you know, issues. Um, and I encourage it, just like you would check on a contractor or anybody else. I, I'm Just for the sake of it, let me say that um, I'm interested in the conversation about absent therapy, but in 23 years of experience, my personal experience is that the rapport that people build with a, a personal therapist is generally, I think, a great deal of the benefit it seems that they get out. I'm certainly not a, a therapist, so I can mm-hmm. say that clinically, but... Uh I I'm interested well, in this as a phenomenon, but it does leave me a little you know curious about how you get past that.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing your, your your thoughts with us, Bob. And Hannah Zivan, I know you sp- you've spoken with a number of psychologists for your upcoming book. What did you learn about how they're thinking overall about these technological shifts in the discipline? I know we've been hearing from Adrian Aguilera's perspective, but um what else have you heard in your in your research?
5: Thanks so much. And well of course the the feelings about teletherapy have changed radically because of the pandemic. Before the pandemic, you know, uh, in private in the private practice setting, someone might talk on the phone or on Facetime or previously Skype, which has now been quite replaced by Zoom uh, to a patient because they were uh, away for work or on vacation, uh, but not as the basic treatment. And so, in the in the book, I argue that up until the pandemic, really, um, teletherapy has been therapy's shadow form. Now, teletherapy is by and large what we mean when we say therapy. And we'll see what happens as folks begin to move back into the office. So before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about um, you know, teletherapy as automatically lesser because there's a technology involved, that the room does things, that we need to be in the room together. and. Uh, in my book, I push back on that in a number of ways. But then, what was very interesting to see is as the pandemic wore on, a number of the people I spoke to started talking about actually how teletherapy might be too intimate or more intimate, mm. either because the voice of your patient is now in your ears and yours in theirs, as opposed wow. to distance on the couch or the chair, but also because if you're doing face-to-face quote-unquote therapy on Zoom, you're seeing the inside of each other's homes. So there's no longer this third clinical space, but instead all of this rich information. And so again, if previously a number of therapists were arguing there's all this loss that attends the techno connection, now it might be that there's too much gain.
2: Interesting. Yeah, because that was gonna be one of my questions for you. Like, are we watering down therapy with this route? Are we evolving it? Um, Yeah, so it sounds like it's just it's changing, (laughs) which may fall into the evolving cap. Camp.
5: Yeah, and, and that, in fact, over, you know, teletherapy and therapy's long history, um, people have always made use of these kinds of media to try and bridge that distance, whether it's the kind of distance Molly was speaking about, there's no clinician near me, or my, my clinician has moved away, or, uh, you know, I can't enter the room, I don't want to go into therapy for whatever reason, but I can make use of the phone, say, or I can make use of email. Um, And now I think we're seeing that that's not uh, necessarily a watering down, but a reconfiguration, which is very different yet again from the question that in part we're addressing, which is how do we batch process patients if we don't have enough clinicians? And those interventions that scale are very different uh, in terms of this question of evolution, watering down and so forth.
2: We're talking about therapy apps with Hannah Zevin, UC Berkeley lecturer, author of the forthcoming book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy, Molly Fisher, Features Writer for The Cut at New York Magazine, and Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist and associate professor at UC Berkeley. And with you, our listeners, have you used a therapy app, whether as someone seeking mental health support or as a therapist? We want to know how it worked for you and wondering if you're welcoming the growth of therapy apps, whether you've used them or not. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More with our panel after the break. I'm Mariana Prail. You're listening to Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Arianna Prail. We're talking about therapy apps this morning. I'm joined by Hannah Zeven, UC Berkeley lecturer and author of the forthcoming book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Molly Fisher features writer for The Cut at New York Magazine. Her latest piece was the uh, The Therapy App Fantasy. And Adrian Aguilera, clinical psychologist, associate professor at UC Berkeley. He also directs the Digital Health Equity and Access Lab. And let's go to a caller. Uh, Ray in Sunnyvale, you're on.
6: And a good morning. So one of the things I, find of, I have found of value is that when I'm in front of a therapist, you know I, I, they can read my body language, and I can read their their body language in terms of the response. I mean, it strikes me that when you're doing teletherapy, you know I'm looking at somebody on this really small screen, they can't really see my entire body. And it strikes me that the body language component of therapy is lost. So how is that compensated? And the Mm -hmm. other question I'm wondering is from when I was listening, about 10 minutes ago, they were talking about, you know, how the therapist gets paid and the number of words that were used and, you know, length of the session, all that stuff. I mean, do the teletherapy apps have a bot or is somebody, you know, is there some recording mechanism in the background that's, keeping track of that to determine the proper payment mechanism. Right.
2: Well, thanks for your questions, Ray. Um, Adrian Aguilera, to his first point around body language, what what are your thoughts on on that?
3: Uh, yeah, I think, so when one is engaged in kind of the therapeutic process, it's, it's about information gathering. So um, I agree that there's something that is lacking uh, when you're not in person and some uh, sense of maybe an energy of a person or the uh, full on uh, body language that that is likely to be missed, right? That's a reality. Um, on the other hand, um, as uh, Hannah's even mentioned, uh, there is other information that's gathered, right That we can that we can now see inside the home of a client potentially. And that provides a wealth of information uh that we didn't have otherwise so in in an interesting way there are there are trade-offs in terms of the type of information that you get that changes the experience
7: well
2: michael writes after seeing a flurry of ads for talkspace on tv i mentioned it to my niece a county social worker to my surprise she said she recommended it to some of her clients so there must be some value in it Molly Fisher, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Reno, Nevada? Because the city funded free talk space for residents in 2021. Is that right? And so there's obviously there is some buzz in kind of large scale in some ways. Yeah.
1: Well, I was I was very interested in this example. Um, Reno's mayor uh, Hillary Shevi had had a really She had had been dealing with mental health struggles of her own, which she has been very open about. And, you know, they were exacerbated, as they have been for many people, by the pandemic. And in her case, also by uh, her brother and sister's deaths in close succession last summer. And she remembers being in a really rough space, struggling to find a therapist, you know, calling lots of offices and not hearing back from anyone. Um, And then seeing a talk space ad and thinking, well... I guess I'll give it a shot. And for her, uh, what Talkspace offered, which is primarily text-based or texting is sort of the, the centerpiece of their service, you know, so you may or may not choose to pay for video visits with a clinician, but you are going to be getting um, what they call unlimited text therapy, although that is unlimited in the sense that you can send as many text messages as you want. It is not unlimited in that you're going to be receiving a, a much a much more limited number of text messages from your therapist almost certainly um in any case uh she she found that that the texting worked well for her she liked the flexibility she liked that you know she didn't have to be on zoom or on camera all the time the way she was during her work day um you know and that that inspired her to try to bring therapy to her whole city via talk space she you know had cares act funding and presented a, a proposition to the city government that she wanted to use it to have this contract with Talkspace. And they ended up unanimously passing it. And so far, that's in the process of rolling out in Reno. So it was sort of spurred by her positive experience with the service. And now um, Reno, I believe, has roughly 200,000 people who are eligible for this service. It's everyone over age 13 in the city. And I think about... Um, Hang on one second. I'm going to check the number here. Uh, but I, be, I believe it's it's under 2,000 who have signed up to use Talkspace through Reno so far. I think it's around 1,300. Um, so they've seen some interest. Um, and I think, you know, my sense certainly in terms of what, what value there is to these services is that it really varies from person to person, that it can be hit or miss, like that there are certainly people who have found a therapist that they like and have connected with through these platforms, but that it's not something that, you know, that they can reliably or consistently guarantee. Um, And I think another important point is that even as texting is something that a number of customers or clients want, um, it is not something that necessarily has robust research to support it at this point. And what I should say also there is I'm not talking about the kind of study that Dr. Aguilera described earlier, which I think is fascinating, um, where texting was kind of being used to support in-person treatment. Um, what the apps really focus on and what does feel like it it needs more research to substantiate it at this point is texting that takes the place of talks, talk Therapy, essentially. So you're trying to have the same kind of conversations that you would have in person via text message. And that is something that in my conversations, I get the sense that a number of researchers and clinicians both are much more hesitant about at this stage, which is not to say it couldn't work and couldn't be really effective for some people, but simply that it's not something that we really know enough about it to say it's effective for these people or it's effective for these conditions or it's effective under these circumstances. So it might work for some people, but it's not something that um, where the evidence is as clear as it could be for, for example, um, video therapy, which which has been pretty robustly supported.
2: Well, Matthew writes, it seems like teletherapy is another incomplete solution to fill the gap left when HMOs do a poor job of covering mental health. I would love to see a therapist once a week, but my HMO doesn't cover it and I'd have to pay out of pocket. So do I go to a technologically distant underpaid professional via my smartphone? This seems like a cheap band-aid. Hannah Z even your um, response to um, Matthew's comment, and then um, Dr. Aguilar, I want to get your thoughts as well.
5: Yeah, I think that that, you know, situation, especially, you know, here in the Bay Area where so many of us who are insured are, you know, at HMOs like Kaiser, that that is a real problem. And that apps are, you know, as we've all discussed, they they depend on this kind of uberization of mental health care model in order to get the number of clinicians needed to fill those uh, client Roles um, and that's not that's not a solution. Um, so I think you know what the kinds of works that Adrian is is doing. That's one way forward, and I do think that there are these other um, longer histories of communities doing care for themselves that may or may not uh, rely on trained uh, professionals who are licensed, but who take on the role of doing that kind of care. And we in the Bay Area are the home of the first ever suicide hotline and also one of the first crisis hotlines um, in the 70s. And these are other forms of, again, adjunctive care. The only way to address uh, this further question is to, you know, with huge policy effort, to make it um, cheap or free to go to school, uh, to get an MSW, to become a licensed social worker, to become a therapist, and also to radically alter the insurance landscape, which, you know, we're in a moment of mass job loss, is so frequently dependent on, uh, you know, your employer. And Talkspace, other apps like this do partner directly with employers, let alone with Reno, uh, to make this uh, available. And we need other alternatives. And um,
2: Adrian Aguilar, kind of extending a little bit um, with that previous question, I want to tack on that you know physicians and therapists at Kaiser Permanente can now refer Kaiser patients to mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy apps through their electronic health record system. And it is showing that if you've been referred by a provider, that you are more likely to engage. Is that something we're likely to see more of? And is that, and it's also bringing up this idea that there's kind of tiers to therapy, right? In terms of, um, I guess that is what we've really been talking about, the tier of, you know, having text access or having face-to-face or, you know, having a, a Zoom kind of convo or, you know, that there's these different layers and they're going to have different degrees of effectiveness depending on the person and that that's okay?
3: That's exactly the way I would see it. And I think that the challenge right now is we have a system that's based on tiers in terms of ability to to pay, frankly, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. services, right? Um, if I've, I mean, I agree with the fact that the system broadly is broken. If somebody asks me how to get in touch with a therapist, I have a hard time telling them because I need to know what their coverage is, their ability to pay, et cetera, right? So that, in and of itself, is a is indicative of a broken system broadly, um, and. In terms of the 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 aspect of tiering, what I would like to see is tiered based on need uh, versus based on the ability to to pay for that. And I think that we have to move towards some model where uh, we can, Provide as many people as possible with some resources, and then help to identify the people who need additional resources so that we can address the need. Um, so I come at it very much from a kind of public health uh, type perspective, perspective, which you know doesn't always address the you know all of our individual needs. But I think if we're looking at broad solutions, I do think that that's the way to go, and therefore things like you know, your uh, mood app or your basic skills app can be the first stage. And there is more of a, of a movement towards the idea of prescribing therapy apps, uh, which is related to what you mentioned um, that Kaiser is doing. And I think the, the last thing I'll add is that what's really important and what we've seen is that you can't just uh, start using an app. People who download an app, Stop using it. Uh, We all know that experience uh, pretty soon after. Um, But what you need is a a full loop to not only have the app, but ideally have a provider involved in that process so that they can see how you're doing over time, what kinds of things are helpful for you. And maybe we can change the model to say you're checking in every single week for an hour. um, And maybe some folks can check in once a month for. You know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, and, and find ways to to utilize our resources, you know, and our human capital in the most effective way possible at the population.
2: And this that this part of the conversation is also reminding me of, you know, how employers are offering it as part of their benefits packages, kind of again, this wider access in some way. And KQED offers the service ginger to all employees, for example. How do these packages work, Molly Fisher?
1: Well, I've been really interested to see this as well. My my employer, as of last year, now offers uh, both Ginger and Talkspace. And it's been really clear that, you know, in the stress of the last year, a number of companies have wanted to be able to say that they are looking out for their employees. They care about their mental health. They care about their well-being. And turning to an app feels like a sort of one-stop shop or it feels like a real Band aid over what's a serious problem. Um, so I think that you know they they sort of they in a lot of ways serve as like a facade of a solution for from a business perspective, but they don't necessarily back that up effectively in what they're offering. You know that I think a lot of employees would be happier with, for example, a stipend that they could use to help pay for therapy or with an insurance coverage that. Better compensated, or that I'm sorry, an insurance that better covered mental health care than they would with, you know, an app that would allow them to text a therapist. So I think that they, it's really a reminder that when you're thinking about these commercial, consumer-facing apps, um, or I'm sorry, business-to-business apps as well, the ones that are marketing themselves primarily primarily to employers. They are businesses first. And so they are trying to meet a business need. And, you know, that's not necessarily a reliable model for providing responsible care, for providing medical care. That's, you know, a a way of answering a different set of exigencies.
2: And I think I have time for one more call. Dr. Shori in Palo Alto, you're on.
7: Hi. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment on a couple of things. I work with people with chronic conditions, especially chronic pain, which has become such a problem for our nation. And two years ago, I started the journey where I told my patients who were kind of not needing to come into the office as much to look into things like talk space. The feedback that I got was some of them went there and said, you know, this is not helpful. It feels very generic. It feels like the therapists are cutting and pasting text messages to us. It's Very, very generic. And then the problem with kind of the um, self-managed apps is, I think like was just pointed out, about 30 days into it, people stop using them because there isn't that accountability or the motivation. So out of all of those frustrations, two years ago, I actually just sunk my own money in and built the app where now what me and my colleagues who support people with mental health and chronic pain are doing is, we are actually supporting people with text therapy between sessions. So the thing is, they can still come and see that provider who's done a proper assessment with them, who knows their history, and can see them in person as needed. But then you can still space the sessions out with this um, text check ins sending them home practice tools. And to our astonishment, one of the things that we found is people who are using that service are staying out of ER, urgent care, because they're not going there for panic attacks or other things, you know, that can really be kind of scary or anxiety provoking, provoking for patients so we have mm-hmm. been able to decrease the utilization for primary care for urgent care for er because they can do a quick check-in with the person that they have this connection wow. with so well. i really want to advocate for this hybrid model where more mental health providers and the app is such that the providers get paid for the money and they keep all of the money the platform charges a nominal fee but well, we're just I so, we I just, sorry, I have
2: to, either. I hate to cut in, but we are, we're coming up towards the end of the um, end of the show. And I just wanted to get a, a final thought from Adrienne Aguilera in, in response to some of what you shared and and just some final thoughts overall on, on where we're headed with therapy apps in, in maybe the next few years, which you hope to see.
3: Sure, I think that... Uh we're in a stage where there's a lot of development and, and there are a lot of companies out there, they're not all gonna succeed and we still need to figure out what's gonna work best. And I think ultimately, as the caller just mentioned, I do think that we're gonna fall into some sort of hybrid approach. We need to understand what works for whom, when. That's the the, the goal that that a lot of folks are trying to reach. And I think we hopefully can leverage uh, technology so that it, we can take the best aspects of technology, um, some automation, but blend it with the importance of a relationship, of accountability, of a human connection that people uh, very often seek when they're engaging in a the therapeutic process.
2: Well, this listener tweets, psychological care compared to dating now i've heard everything kind of throwing back to when we talked about the comparison to dating apps earlier thank you to dr adrian aguilera clinical psychologist and associate professor at uc berkeley who directs the digital health equity and access lab thanks for joining us adrian
3: thank you for having me
2: and thanks molly fisher features writer for the cut at new york magazine thanks for your article and for joining us today
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: And thanks to Hannah Zeevan, UC Berkeley lecturer and author of the forthcoming book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Thanks for adding your thoughts.
5: Thank you so much
2: for having me. And thanks. Yeah. And thanks to our listeners for all for sharing your experiences with us. More form in the next hour with Mina Kim. Stay with us. I'm Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio
0: and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
4: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum.
3: I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya! How?! you left to find my tablet on.
7: Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network.
5: Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
7: Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, the political scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following the political scene available now wherever you get your podcasts.